Welcome to the Networking with Plants in the Anthropocene podcast. This week, we're joined with the wonderful Sarah Gabriel. Welcome, Sarah. Thank you, Kate. And I wanted to say thank you for holding this space. I've really been enjoying listening to the previous interviews that you've done, and I know it's a labor of love, so thank you. Oh, thank you so much. It is, it's definitely a labor of love. I love doing it, <laughs> but there is some work involved. <laughs> so today we are going to talk a little bit about a project you're currently working on, um, the audio library. And I was wondering if you could share with us a bit about that project. Sure. So thank you for um, agreeing to have this conversation with me because I'm like a little stuck on this project. And so this is, I'm hoping, I'm not hoping, I'm actually trusting that this conversation is good, this discussion is gonna, gonna help move me forward. So, so my current overarching mission is to help myself and anybody else who wants to come along with me to move myself out of the center, to help move human beings out of the center. For me, that feels like one of the core ways in which we have kind of gone on the wrong path. and. So the practices around that are to push on three worldviews, the time horizon worldview, the field of vision, and the species that are on my radar. And so I do that by sitting with plants and sitting with trees and being outside and looking up at the clouds and you know, really just allowing sort of myself not to be in charge. Uh, so one of the words I want to uh, define it a little bit, it's a word that I came across in my studies. I know a few of the people that you've talked to have, have uh, had some relationship with Schumacher College in the UK. So I spent a month there in the spring doing a course on um, ecology and embodiment. And one of the important words that we used was umwelt. That's U-M-W-E-L-T. It's a German word. And it's being used now in this in this kind of conversation that's going on, which is how is it that we understand the umwelt, the, the environment and the life and the experience of another when we can't be the other. And so this audio library project is one project that will further that, our ability to, to understand the umwelt. But, you know, in popular culture now we have this, uh, the, movie the my octopus teacher that was a that was craig foster doing a job of you know trying to immerse in the umwelt of the octopus so that's a word that you know is going to come up and and that's sort of the, what we're gearing towards is how is it that we get to understand the umwelt of another so this so the audio library project it actually started out um what i thought was like what about guided meditation what if we what if i wrote a guided meditation to help people understand the life of a dandelion. Like, what if I did that? So um, a little daunting to figure out like, how do you have to even write? I mean, I am kind of a writer, but it's not my primary thing. I don't have a tremendous confidence in, in my skill as a writer, although people tell me I'm a good writer. So I, I went to ChatGPT. And for people who aren't familiar with ChatGPT, that's a artificial intelligence AI app that anyone can register for and get a little bit of access to. Um, and just a caveat there, if it's something that's really important, like life impacting, make sure you verify because it, it has a, 
reputation for hallucinating sometimes if it doesn't know the answer. Uh, but in this case, you know, that, that, that was not the case. So I came into ChatGPT and I said, can you write the uh, five minute guided meditation on the dandelion? And it generated a little text that, you know, was eh, it was meh. And what I realized is I didn't ask a good question. So what's happened for me is that I have actually, this process, I did iteration after iteration after iteration. And in this process, I've learned to ask better questions. And this is parenthetically as an aside, as we get in relationship more with artificial intelligence, the way we ask questions is gonna be really a, like a critical skill. Okay, that aside. So I, I realized I needed to feed the, feed more information to say, oh, that was good. Thank you. I'm actually very kind to ChatGPT because kindness is one of my values. I figured, why not there too? And I said, um, can you incorporate things like how the taproot uh, is medicine for the soil and, you know, for compacted soil and how the, it's the first flower in the spring to come as um, with nectar and pollen for the pollinators. And so then it generated text for that. And at some point, I got a little, I got an idea that shifted it all. At some point, it got better at what it was writing. And at some point, I thought, wait a minute, what if I were to do like a bedtime story between a mama dandelion and her baby seedlings just before she releases them to the wind? And she's telling them about what's ahead, what's their life ahead. And I just got a warm feeling from that, like, oh, let me try that. So I went back into the thread of chat GPT and I said, can you take the last two iterations that you did and turn it into a bedtime story between a mom and dad? It wrote, I mean, not the most beautiful, not the, but it wrote a, a beautiful piece. I mean, I read it to a friend of mine and she cried. It wrote a beautiful little piece. So I thought, wow, I think I'm onto something here. So then I've been writing. So chat GPT, you know, I fed in a little bit more, but what that did was it, it, it challenged me to go research more because I have to feed in. And then at some point I stopped and said, okay, now I'm going to write. Now I'm going to write. I'm going to take this little piece that chat GPT helped me get started, the little draft, and I'm going to make it a, a longer story. So, so I did that. So I have this, we're going to read it. I, I, um, you know, the idea now is to get to do a lot of these stories, dandelion and the blue jay and the beavers and the, you know, and the fungi and everybody do these stories, mamas with the babies and get famous people to read them. So that's like, the, that's the vision. That's, then I go into my organizational development of like, okay, how do you build out that platform and all that? I got that going, that picture going. But the text itself is a challenge. You have to really know intimately. So I started with the dandelion because I have a little bit of history with the dandelion. So I, I already knew it a bit, but as I, you know, I thought I came up with a lot of things like when, the, when they do, when, when the, when the mama releases the baby seedling to the, you know, what's happening there. Is it the, is it the flower releasing the seed or is it the seed pushing away from the flower? Like right there is a very interesting thing about the umwelt of the dandelion. Like where's the motivation to, to move on coming from? So it, that's just one little example. So what I did was I, you know, I asked ChatGPT, can you tell me like a 
timeline and the details of the life cycle. And then I went and researched each of those things to read what's get my sense of what's going on and, and then wrote sort of more of those stories. So um, I'm doing this project. And then what I realized is I started to talk to people about it. Most people love it. Most people put their hand to their heart and go like, oh, what a beautiful idea. But I did hit a couple people who said, shook their finger at me, like shaming me. That's anthropomorphizing. That's anthropomorphizing. So here we got another word that we maybe have to define, right? We have anthropomorphizing. So that is you're, you're ascribing human characteristics and emotions and thoughts and behaviors to that which doesn't have those, to plants which don't have those, or that you can't assume that they have those. So that's the idea of anthropomorphizing. If you say, for example, uh, you know, the tree is sad, right? There, you could say you're anthropomorphizing. You're saying, how do you know the tree's sad? Why are you sad is a human emotion, right? So, so um, I realized that before I can move ahead, this became the bump in my road, that before I can move ahead and offer this out into the world, I have to have a, you know, really strong relationship. I have to have really thought deeply about this whole concept of anthropomorphizing because it does, it's going to distract people from hearing. It, if my goal is to get people to understand at, at some level, but they get distracted by, wait a minute, that crossed my line, then, then, um, you know, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to be effective. So um, I'm wondering, you know, the anthropomorphizing is a big thing. I imagine in your research that you have done and the world that you've been swirling in for the last almost decade of your life, that that's come up a lot. And I wonder if you have something to add to that definition to help people understand that a little bit more. Definitely. Um, I think anthropomorphizing and anthropomorphism is something that especially a, a bit ago, like a, maybe a few decades ago, was almost universally negative so especially in context with like other animals like it was just so controversial to even say something like cows have best friends or that they even form relationships like what humans are what is so central to human social relationships and so I could see where a story about plant family units would be very unsettling, um, especially if someone hadn't thought of it before. And yet, there's also a host of arguments and considerations that say we can't escape our own kind of way of being in the world, and that that influences how we see others and how we see maybe parts of what we experience of their umwelt. And so it's important to maybe not do a quick value judgment on whether the, you know, thinking of trees having friends is good or bad, or my dog having an enemy <laughs> is good or bad, but rather just kind of letting it be there and thinking about it and considering it before having a gut reaction of, oh, this is terrible, like to make that type of judgment, or oh, this is the best thing. Um, because there's a lot more nuance there, I think. Yes, thank you. Uh, you know, I when I think about like the tree is sad, 
So a few years ago, so I think everybody has a line. Actually, I think we can't help but anthropomorphize. I think everything we say, even if everything we say is anthropomorphizing, it really is because we can't do it any other way. We only have our own language to express our own experiences. So for example, and, and that everybody has their own line. So for example, the tree is sad. You know, you see like a scraggly tree in a parking lot that's surrounded by asphalt and it's not looking so good. And you say the tree is sad, right? So three or four years ago, I would have said that crossed my line, that that one crossed my line. But the truth is that three years ago, two or three, uh, three years ago, I met a Norway maple who was a curmudgeon. I did. I was at this, I was at a, for, for five months in this little bungalow and it was a pandemic. I could be outside. I was in like this little lake community and they were surrounded by maples, beautiful, beautiful trees surrounded. And I brought my little table out with my two chairs because I got a little view of the lake from there right next to this one tree. And I actually, it was the first time it ever happened to me, Kate. I got a message from the tree that said, don't sit so, don't crowd me. Don't sit so close to me. I was like, I, I could feel it. And the other trees there that I had befriended didn't have that feeling, didn't. There was more of this open welcome, come hang with me. It was a curmudgeon. So three years ago, I would have said that crossed my line, but now I don't. That one doesn't cross my line. And you know, you think of like bees and flowers when they're doing their spring dance. I would say the bees and flowers are lovers. Like that would be another way. So for some people, that one doesn't cross the line. You think, yes, I can see that. These, I can see them as lovers, right? For other people, they'd say like, no, that crosses, right? But, but uh, it, for me, it actually gives me an appreciation of queer ecology to start to think of in the, in the plant and animal and insect world, what it means to be a lover is a whole exploration of queer ecology, right? And then you have like, one that probably doesn't cross a lot of people's line at all, which is like, you know, after a fire or after a clear cut and that you have succession, right? Actually, dandelions come up one of the first and some of the things are coming up first and then the tulip poplars come up. And some people might say that they're, that they're competing for resources, that they, you know, are looking for the sun and they compete for resources or that they're cooperating, that at some point they cooperate. Well, I mean, I would submit that the words compete and cooperate are just as anthropomorphized as saying sad or, or lovers. That it is likely that something's going on in the forest that is something that we don't have a word for. Some combination of competing and cooperating that we don't actually have a word for it. So we have to use our words. It looks like what we experience as competition and, and cooperation. So in that way, I have given myself permission now to anthropomorphize in in storytelling. Uh, however, I am going to put like I'm working on and part of this conversation that we're discussion we're having today is going to help me do this draft like a you know a disclaimer or caveat that goes on the top of the page of the landing page of this audio library that in that that names it that recognizes says look this is gonna cross something in one of these stories is going to cross your boundary and you're going to have this reaction like that's anthropomorphizing and the invitation is to just suspend judgment just to let it to understand that 
actually it's all anthropomorphizing and you just have your own line. And that's partly your line is drawn by the relationships you have up until now developed with beings that are other than human. And that as you develop, if you choose to, as you develop more relationships in the other than human world, in the more than human world, your line is going to move. So, uh, so this is an invitation and we're going to, so we're So Kate, so for listeners, Kate and I are both going to, um, we're going to read this little story to you. I'm going to be the mama dandelion and Kate's going to be the baby seedling seedlings. Each one is probably a different voice. And just, uh, I want to say caveat, caveat. So many times I'll say it just so that you can suspend judgment. This is not a final product. This is not what is going to ultimately be. This is part of the iteration of exploring where are the boundaries here, what's going to work to help people actually be able to uh, connect with this work. So I've gone kind of extreme with the anthropomorphizing. It is likely it will cross everybody's line at some point or another. And so it's done specifically to stimulate this conversation. It might be interesting for you if you'd like to make some little notes for yourself of where did it cross the line? like that one crossed for me. Just make a little note, maybe. Be an interesting one for your own learning and growth to see where that is now. And then maybe if you have an outdoor practice that you're uh, you know, developing more to see where that goes. Um, the other thing I would ask or invite listeners to is to maybe pause this for just a moment and bring up on some device, if you're not outside, you know, pull up a, the most beautiful picture of dandelion, one or many dandelions that you can find and have that in front of you as you listen to this story that is a, a conversation between a mama dandelion and her baby seedlings. Look, mama, I grew a parachute. Yes, my little seedlings, aren't they beautiful? That's your pappas. It means that you're all grown up Soon I will release you to the great carrier wind and you will fly and start your own life. Are you excited? Yes, Mama. I can't wait to fly. I'm scared. Can I stay with you longer? Each of you will go in your own time over the next few cycles of the sun. Do you feel yourself swelling? You're getting ready. Soon the great wind carrier will come and lift you and you will soar through the sky. How far will we go, Mama? Oh, most likely you'll land pretty close by. But if the wind is strong and dry and fast, you could land a mile away. Some of our friends, the honeybees, travel that far too. When you touch the soil, the sun will start to nourish you. If the soil is moist, you'll grow little roots and begin your relationship with all the beings in the soil. Hmm. Who will we meet in the soil, Mama? Oh, the soil is home to so many, my sweet little seedlings. The earthworms make tunnels that let water and air flow so you can drink and breathe. The mycelia of the fungal world will find you and attach at your roots. Some bacteria, too. But will they hurt us? Do we need to protect ourselves from them? Oh, no. They're friends. They attach themselves to feed you 
minerals and other nutrients that help you grow and connect you with lots of other life underground. In return, you'll give them food that make the sacred relationship we have with the sun. This is reciprocity, how everyone gives and takes in ways that all life is nourished. Do we do reciprocity only with fungi and bacteria? Oh, we have so many relationships. It's called ecology. Our big gift is that we bring medicine underground. We send, when we're underground, we send the taproot deep into the soil, maybe even as deep as 15 feet. This breaks up hard, compacted soil and helps us bring mineral nourishment to the community of life that's nearer to the surface. This is root medicine for the life in the soil. Above ground, we have more medicine to offer. Every day, when you wake up, you will drink the warmth of the sun and drink moisture from the soil and your leaves will grow stronger and taller. Lots of insects eat our leaves and some animals too. Sometimes the animals like dogs, horses, and humans use the leaves as medicine when they need a boost for their health. Will we be mamas and have baby seedlings like you? Yes, my little ones. But first you will flower, and that may be our biggest contribution to the grand flow of nourishment. One day you will birth a small yellow flower, and your journey will take on a new purpose. We are one of the first to flower in the spring, and we are bursting with nectar and pollen. We boldly announce ourselves with the brightest yellow and invite so many pollinator friends to come and dance with us. This flower is a beacon of love and hope for bees and butterflies. All season long, we flower again and again. We get to be that part of life that is generosity. Sounds like a wonderful life, Mama. Yes, it is. We drink in the sun and the soil. We give away food and medicine. But there are some challenges. Some humans don't know about our medicine and try to limit our lives. When we grow on their lawns, they have mowers that try to cut us down. But we're really smart. You will learn to grow shorter so the mowers won't get you. There are even some ignorant humans who don't understand about how everything is connected and will spray us with chemicals to kill our roots. They don't realize that so many beings are eating us for food and medicine, or that the chemicals travel in the soil and in the great carrier wind. Why don't they like us, Mama? Oh, baby, I don't know. I've heard that some humans have an idea of the perfect lawn, where they can control everything. Any other life that shows up, even if the soil calls to the great carrier wind to drop us and help bring medicine, it messes with their perfect picture. It's a narrow vision, and they just don't know better. But don't worry about that. We dandelions are worthy and strong and resilient beyond imagination. Our seeds will keep spreading and growing. What happens to our seeds, our flowers have given all their nectar and pollen to those beings who dance with us. When they have, the seeds, just like you, will burst forth in joy, grow parachutes, and fly on the wings of the great carrier wind. And even when our above-ground life has come to an end, our taproot remains, continuing to offer our underground root medicine. And it's a spiritual taproot, too. 
weaving our spirit into the grandness beyond time and place, a legacy of nourishment, interdependence, and connection. So you see, my sweet seedlings, we have much to offer and are just one small part of this vast living organism called Gaia, this beautiful planet of interconnectedness and entanglement. Our ancestors go back 30 million years, and we became who we are, along with our mammal, insect, and bird kin. We are so adaptable and resilient and offer so much medicine that it's likely we'll be around for a long, long time. Each of us has a role to play, and together we all create a harmonious and nourishing world. We are never alone. Thank you, Mama, for telling us all about what's ahead. I'm not scared anymore. And I think I am ready to fly away and start exploring the world. It has been my greatest joy and purpose to be your mama, my little seedlings. I will be right here watching over you and cheering on as you grow and thrive. just heard that story you know the dandelion and the mama dandelion and it was quite extremely anthropomorphized so I had two threads of thought with this the first is that I continue to remind myself that the repair I'm trying to address with these stories is our sense of separateness from the rest of nature it leads us to see plants as resources and it gives us permission to extract and exploit. So that's the, that's, the, uh, that's the brokenness and that's the repair. And I, wanna, I always wanna keep reminding myself about that. The second thread is more linguistic. It's more about the languaging and the communication. You know, how, how might we not anthropomorphize? Like I start thinking about that, how might we not? The, and as I think about that, I see that actually all of our speech is anthropomorphizing, unless we're spe specifically talking about like a um, chemical measurement, you know, measurement of chemicals in molecules. We are anthropomorphizing. Uh, one example I want to say about that is, you know, work with a lot of people who are kind of tree tenders and all of that. People get very upset about the vines on the trees and the vines are strangling the trees. So I hear that and I think to myself, that's anthropomorphizing. We could just as easily say the tree and vines are lovers, you know, uh, or let's get a little less, maybe a little less uh, triggering for people and say that the vine and tree are in an intimate relationship. That, that's without putting a judgment of good or bad there. That, that might sound anthropomorphizing to people, more anthropomorphizing than the vine is strangling the tree, but I would submit that, that it's all because we don't really know what that relationship is between the vine and the tree. But we can get curious. We can get curious, so there's the thing. So the question becomes more nuanced. It's not should we or shouldn't we use anthropomorphizing language or, um, you know, are we, or, or making a judgment, are we anthropomorphizing? We do, and we are. That is the truth. Unless we're giving numbers, we are anthropomorphizing. So the better question is, what good can come from it? 
and what are the potential harms that we want to kind of be paying attention to. So that's where I'm coming from. So that might be like it's a shift in the way people are thinking. It's not like, oh, that's anthropomorphizing. It's all anthropomorphizing. Let's test, have that assumption for now. If you don't agree with me, that's okay. But for the moment, let's have that as an assumption and move forward with a little conversation about that. So, so what's the harm? What's the harm in anthropomorphizing? Yeah, we just heard this story. What's the harm in, in hearing a story about a mama and a baby? So I have... I had three ideas from this. One is that you might feel silly or you might have a fear of appearing silly or, and then not taken seriously. And I imagine this actually in the academic, I'm not in the academic world. I'm on the edges of that, but I imagine in the academic world, you know, this is pretty intense and it's similar to the, even general discussions about plant intelligence is that, you know, that's so silly. And you, and even though we know that, we will be proven right in a lot of ways as the as life unfolds, um, and we have been proven right in a lot of ways. That it still doesn't feel good to be in a place where our credibility is being questioned. So that's a, that's a that's a that's a harm. That's a potential danger of anthropomorphizing, uh, you know, of certain types of language and that. The second is that we might project from our own experience without any really good attempts to understand the umwelt. And so we get it wrong. We might get it wrong. So we, you know, human beings are omnivores. Dandelions are not omnivores. So we may want to feed a dandelion things that dandelions don't eat. If we don't, if we, if we anthropomorphize the dandelions hungry, and then we do a projection of what our own need would be and, and, assign that to the plant. The truth is, this is also true for our human interactions, that we make assumptions about other people based on how we're feeling. So it's not so different in that way, but it is one of the things that about anthropomorphizing. And the third one that I, that I have thought of is that like anything, if we take it too far, we can get paralyzed and then we don't know how to take any action. We could, for example, we could be afraid to walk on the lawn you know, a child hearing a story and a mama and a baby and then sees a dandelion and has stepped on it. and might get very upset. I stepped on it. So there's a kind of a taking it too far, um, especially for youngsters there that might be. So those are the kind of the three dangers that I see in that is feeling silly or not feeling, you know, a fear of not being taken seriously, projecting from our own experience without, um, curiosity, which, you know, keeps us getting it wrong, that we could get it wrong. And then if we take it too far, that we become paralyzed. And then we, we that, that actually uh, contributes to separating ourselves from that, from that experience. So those are the things I thought of, like, with the harm in anthropomorphizing. Do you have anything to add to that? Or any reaction to the things I said? Yeah, I think that they're really important potential harms. I think, you know, <clears throat> that it is interesting um, in hearing you talk through those potential harms. It seems like maybe, you know, there's this tendency or concern about um, humility and curiosity, because that's something that's come up several times as you're, as you're talking through anthropomorphizing that 
there's kind of like this this tension between like scientific inquiry and thinking through some of the things that either plants are capable of or claims that we're making when we say, you know, we're anthropomorphizing. Um, but there's also that curiosity that's there and humility in an ideal type of scientific inquiry that like, you know, we are kind of trapped within our own experiences to a certain extent and we see the world through that lens, but that we can navigate some of those harms if we're aware of it and have a type of humility and curiosity as we're going through it. And within our larger human uh group so like being concerned about being judged as silly or not serious like those are very live concerns um especially as you mentioned in the academic circles and you know it can get in the way of the work you're doing if someone considers you to be silly or non-rigorous and so having humility both as human beings talking to other human beings about this but also as human beings connecting with plants. Yes, very well said, thank you. Uh, as you were talking, what I thought of was like, if I were, um, you know, I mentioned that I was a PhD wannabe for, you know, <laughs> many times. So I have thought through like thesis topics. I have I have a lot of those, you know, study this, study this. So like in, in applying that to this, like it would be interesting to generate uh, inquiry, for example, you know, how might we best describe the relationship between the um, seeds and the and the and the dandelion plant at the moment that the seeds are being released? What are different ways that we could uh, describe that? So actually, do that as kind of a social psychology um, inquiry on some level, like a, a plant-focused social psychology inquiry. And so it's not saying that they have it, it's not stating that there is a specific relationship. It is going from that curiosity place. Could it be like this? Could it be like this? Like even building like analogies, what analogy, you know, might, what metaphor, what metaphor might work best in terms of um, humans making that connection so that we get, we're in a critical thinking place. You know, it becomes, it's a critical thinking inquiry, not making any assumptions. Um, and not stating or projecting any of our feelings, but questioning which might and why, like substantiating that. Why would you say that that metaphor works best? And that's based on, you know, some science um, to say it's similar in this way, similar in this way, not similar in that way. That, that might be an interesting bridge in the academic world is to, um, to kind of normalize inquiry that helps us it could even be stated as to help us not anthropomorphize so much, right? In that in that world. So that's interesting. Thank you. Yeah. So um, maybe let's flip a little bit to some of the benefits. Like why? What's good about anthropomorphizing? And so I came up with three here also. Uh, so one is that we, you know, is empathy. Empathy is, you know, probably the biggest one and the most um, obvious one. And that empathy is what might help us shift from this extraction mentality 
you know, I had a, I had a, you know, I'm, I'm practicing this. I am practicing my, I'm walking my talk here. So I, and I see it all the time. We're so, in, it's so ingrained in us to use things as resources. So I have my new friend, the, the white pine out front. And I noticed that there was um, resin dripping from a spot and I didn't see a wound. My, my very first thought, but it was so quick that I flipped it. I was proud of myself, patting myself in the back. But my very first thought was, what can I use that for? What's resin good for? Medicinally, or, you know, they use it for pitch. To, what's it good? That was my very first. And then I, like I said, Sarah, pull back. And then I asked the question, why, why is the tree putting out resin? There's something going on in the tree that, and I made inquiries with people who are my, my tree people, and there's probably something inside is trying to push out. I, and I took a little of it not to use. I took a little of it that was dripping that I saw would drip onto the ground so that it wasn't gonna be part of the, whatever it's trying to do there. I put a little in my teeth to taste it and feel it. I put a teeny bit on a, on a piece of bark that had fallen and I have it on my desk here so I can smell it every once in a while. Getting to know, this tree i come out and i see the resin and i don't think i stop myself from thinking what's it good for so it is more empathy and you know again you can take empathy extreme and people can say it's too extreme but the question of why is it and what's going on for the tree we know that there's something there so to tune into that aspect so that's that's one area that's going to repair that separation is to have the empathy the second is to inspire action you mentioned, I think it might've been off, off mic, you know, that a um, child might, in listening to the story, m might confront a parent about what they're, how they're handling their lawns using Roundup and, you know, whatever they're doing to get rid of stuff and that the child might do that so that it could inspire action in that way. Um, and very often the kids confronting the parents, the parent, that's where the parents actually are able to hear it is when it comes from the kids and it, not from a, you know, a news article. Um, the third is that um, it's, a, it's an opportunity to, to practice respect. So here we get respect and reciprocity and it's, you know, it's an opportunity. So an example that I have for this is, you know, when I take groups of people to walk, small groups of people to walk in the forest, one of the things that I do and, in the feedback that I've gotten from people, it's often noted as one of the most powerful moments in the experience for them is we, we meet like at a parking lot or something, and then we walk to where we're going to go take a walk. And I have identified some place in the woods that's kind of like a threshold, which is going to be our transition from our world into a different world. And what I say is that there is a whole conversation going on in here, whether we're here or not. And that when in our entering in, we are, you know, on some level, we could say we're interlopers when we're feeling separate. But in order to feel connected, we come in, we come in with respect, we come in maybe with quiet so that we can listen. What's the conversation going on? We might, there's a lot of conversations going on. And then at some point, we, we, I invite people to go find a conversation they want to join. You know, uh, over here, you want to talk with the brook that's running over the rocks that have the moss on it, or you want to talk with the oak tree. Like, wh which conversation do you want to join in with? So this idea of conversation 
is anthropomorphizing on some level. That would be the 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 word that some people might who want to be sticklers, you know, might pick out and say, you know, what do you mean they're having a conversation? So it's a it's just a word, right? And it is anthropomorphizing, but it gives us this opportunity to step back and say, whoa, we are not at the center here. You know, we are not at the center, and we're part. We can be part of it if we invite ourselves in. So it's an you know opportunity to listen. And again, this is you know earlier on I mentioned how my two things are ecology and anti-racism, and how they're not too dissimilar. This is the one about that. It's like, you know, those of us who have sat at the table and had the voice have to get quiet and let others have their voice. Uh, you know, and we have to do it consciously to say, even though know, we thought we're in charge, we're not in charge, step back, listen to what's going on here and get some insights and be curious about the, the wealth of others, the life of others. So, you know, if I'm going to make my case to say that uh, in defense of anthropomorphizing, in defense of bedtime stories that, that give conversations of mamas and babies and hit people in the heart space, in order to do this repair. You know, my bottom line is I would say, really stay curious about others, ask good questions, you know, get quiet. Don't let the idea of being silly or, or you know, or getting it wrong, get in the way of trying to understand the unwealth of others. I mean, use it as a, as a you know, you hear people and, you're, and if you have a reaction of that's anthropomorphizing, stop yourself and say, what about that? bothers me? What about that is going to cause harm? What about how can I maybe reframe it or, or engage with this person who's doing it or myself who's doing it in a way that is going to um, actually repair that separation? So that's my little defense for that. So uh, yeah, I don't know if you have other thoughts about um, benefits and uh, if you might want to add something into that. Yeah, no, that all sounds great. <laughs> I think that it's, yeah, it's uh, really interesting. And um, it's exciting to see your work and kind of see how it's embodied, but also see the work going on behind the scenes to kind of bring the books, um, the audio storytelling to life, you know, so it's really cool to see your process. Yes, thank you. And I, like I said, I'm going to, you know, in communicating because people do react and then they can't, they react, they get, they get emotionally stimulated and then their brain a little bit stops, you know, the blood flow stops moving in a way that they can't think forward. And I want people to be able to hear it. So it's, it's, you know, that's the hard part is uh, giving like, you know, it's not exactly a disclaimer, but the introduction, the entry the entry point into the experience in a way that people can be present and not, you know, not feel resistant and silly and be able to set aside those kinds of things for themselves to be able to grow themselves in this and have more nuanced understanding about the, about this interaction between humans and the plants. title of the original dandelion stories and guided in the guided meditations that I started writing the title of that in my google docs was dandelion at the center 
And the idea was to put different beings at the center. And it's a stepping stone. The, the, actually, nobody's at the center. Nothing is at the center. But I might say nothing is at the center for very long, rather than nothing is at the center. So the idea is that there is a flow. There's a flow and there's flows, there's needs. And there, you know, there's places where we contribute to the flow of nourishment. We draw from the flow of nourishment. We find respite and bathe in the flow of nourishment. So there is a movement. It's very sensual. It's a, it's a lot of movement that's happening. So we move in and out of the center. We move others in and out of the center. So it's like a spotlight, spotlight on the dandelion. Put the dandelions at the center for a little while, and then they can become part of your radar, part of your you know, spiritual understanding of, of the universe. Uh, you know, then move the blue jays into the center. The blue jays, one of the interesting things I learned, I don't know if you know this, but um, the blue jays evolved with the oak trees and their beak holds, is evolved to hold the acorn. And the blue jays are responsible. There are oak trees all over the world, natively all over the world. And the blue jays are responsible for that. The blue jays spread, they have an old intimate relationship Right. So this is part of that story. And when you tell the story of of any one of these beings, it's not their own story that's going to connect out. So, you know, in my again, my sort of systems organizational development thinking, do I do I go with the spread? You know, I, I can I did a little consulting conversation with a one of my um, herbal medicine sisters from the cohort where I did my training. We, we each picked a plant ally for the year. And she picked dandelion. I actually was on the elder, the elder tree, the elderberry. She picked the dandelion. So I consulted with her. I, I read the story to her and all of that. And she went off in some different directions. She said, oh, the wind has to have his own story. We have to do that. It's either a sidebar where the wind is, where you hear about what's all the wind, have, or maybe that's just a separate story that connects in so that after the dandelion, there's a wind story. So that you can, because they're all we're all players in the in the in the theater. Yes, yeah, that's really interesting to think about. That is either the visualization of having like a center and things dancing in and out of it, or just uh, not a mess of, but a collection of kind of relationships that are less kind of circularly focused and more just kind of all over the place, a <laughs> frenzy of relationships. Right, Entanglement. I love that. Merlin Sheldrake, one of my all-time favorite books, is Entangled Life. And I love that he uses that word to describe, you know, and, and the mycelia and how they play in that entanglement. And it really is entanglement. Uh, but that doesn't mean that we can't, you know, tease out. It's how we learn. I mean, as human beings, actually, he articulated this really well in that book, which was that, you know, he tells a story in the introduction. He he had me at the introduction. He tells a story about a conference he was at where there was a some flower they were talking about in the chemical, the smell of the flower, you know, somehow uh, was the wholeness of the identity of that flower. And somebody stood up and said, it's actually not the flower that's doing the scent. It's the bacteria that's causing the flower to have. And then somebody else stood up and speculated, no, it's not actually the bacteria. It's the fungi in relationship with the bacteria that's causing the So what he said was that all the biology blurred into ecology. And, you know, what I got, I already kind of know it, but what I got really more clearly at that moment was, you know, all these 
smaller than ecology studies that we do, biology and molecular biology and chemistry and all of the smaller things we do are all in are all a subset of ecology. They're all in support of ecology. And it's how we as humans learn. We categorize, we dissect, we reduce in order to understand the piece. But if the final part of that, or not the final part, if part of that process is not connecting it back into ecology, we are on the wrong path. There was an article recently, I don't know if you saw it, but somebody did a study about the squirrels and how there's different personalities. Did you see that? No, different like person. Yeah, somebody studied like a, stayed for a while immersed in a whole community of squirrels and tracked them and found that, you know, some were aggressive, some were passive, some were uh, friendly, some were not, some were skittish, others were bold, that, that you know, that squirrels have personalities. So I have the same reaction when like, um, you know, sometimes, uh, you know, I, I've heard you ask a lot of your interviewees, you know, what's your, do you have a favorite plant? So I was anticipating that you might ask me that. And I, uh, I wouldn't say I have a particular favorite category of plant because I connect with like an individual, you know, like, like the 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 oak tree that's right by my house here is very sad. I mean, it's so and it's very you know. So I connect with that one. You know, I I uh, actually find myself more drawn to um, stumps and fallen trees. I think that's probably that mycelial nature of mine is that when I'm walking in the woods, when I stop to look at something more carefully, it's the stumps and all the life that's growing, things that we call dead, which are so not dead. There's so much, first of all, going on underground if it's a stump and above ground if it's just a, if it's a log there. So, um, so they, you know, each dandelion has a personality. The one that has been mowed over so much that's learned to grow shorter has a different energy to it than the ones that are in the fields that have been able to just have their full height. You know, I, when I was in the UK, there were fields of dandelion. They were, they were two feet tall. Dandelions that are two feet tall and, uh, you know, a whole field of them. You don't ever see that here or imagine maybe there are some places, but I've never seen that here. And so that's, a, it's a, it is a, it has a different personality than the ones on the lawn that are being mowed. So this is, you know, it's just an interesting thing for us to, to think about. I've been having this conversation with people about invasive and non-native languaging for five or six years. And when I first started doing it, I used to offend people with suggesting that they are, there's no difference from, you know, wanting to build the wall and calling something non-native. And that would offend people and then they couldn't hear the story, right? Which is what I'm doing now with the anthropomorphism about that. It's the same thing, right? So I wrote a very gentle, a gentle rant, basically with two premises. One is that what we know about ecology is so limited that we don't really know what the earth needs so that it's really hubris for us to to make assumptions about how long things need to be where and why they're here and what work they're doing because we can't see it so that was the number one is that we don't know and the second was that the language is really unkind and why are we putting out such unkind militaristic negative vibes to other beings and I 
had some response. I have a, a dozen people who want to join me in a discussion of the book, The New Wild by Fred Pierce, which is a great discussion of that topic. So here we have the same, even though it's not, that's not anti-racism, but it is. It's the same process. And that work that I do with the plants around that informs the work that I do with people in this town that has a history and a current practices around this whole topic of anti-racism. Yes, that's really fascinating. And I think that especially on this platform, like it's something that has come up, you know, like um, Kate Sandilands in her episode, which will be out by the time people, folks hear this, um, talks about approaches to invasive species or non-native species that, for example, indigenous folks would find abhorrent. And so it's kind of like these all of these tensions and all of these really complicated relationships and histories and not just trying to like throw a moral judgment on like invasives evil or, you know, and native good. And yeah, I mean, the whole as a as a philosophy person and as someone in ethics, like I remember initially when I was younger thinking, oh, what kind of ethical issues could be involved in like restoration projects? And it's like, oh my goodness, you want to see a great case study for hundreds of different ways that ethics can come up in interacting with an ecosystem and the decisions of, well, which time, which part of the timeline are you aiming for? Like, which is the good ecosystem and which is the like, not so good. And how do you manage or should you manage? And I mean, my goodness, there's just so much discussion to be had there, I think. Um, yes. Yes. And for me, you know, coming back to what I said a little bit while ago is that the practice is really about, it, it's not that it's really about. One way that I have simplified all of these concepts to have a practice that is manageable is to basically look at those three factors, the time horizon, field of vision, and species on the radar. So, you know, any, when I'm inviting other people to come like on walks with me or whatever, we do, we, we, name that and and push on it and i do it in my own well as i was writing this i thought okay have i pushed on the time horizon and i hadn't yet really so I, that's when i added in the 30 million year ancestors and we're so resilient that we're going to be long time in the future just to remind people remind myself remind people that there's a longer thing than just the dandelions growing on my lawn and what am i going to do about it or that it's offering medicine you know something Time horizon, longer than that. I sometimes joke that when I feel impatient, which is not infrequent, I feel impatient. I just think of lichen on rocks making soil. You know, that process is happening over hundreds and thousands of years. They're alive and they're in relationship. They're making so they have purpose. And it's like over a really long period of time, you know, so I, I'll go in that direction with the time horizon. You know, with the field of vision, that one was easy with the dandelion because it's like, you know, we don't see what's going on underground. So when we say invasive, we say invasive, it's because 
It's taken over everything. Well, it's only taken over everything that we can see right in front of us. We have no idea what's going on underground. And I'm not suggesting that it's all good. I'm just saying we don't know. We don't see what's going on underground. We don't know actually what might be being released into the wind that's carrying to the next place over. That's maybe helping, who knows, I'm just gonna speculate now, is helping with migration. This northerly with the climate warming, you know, everything's moving. Everything's moving. The, the, they've been moving. They're not moving fast enough because we've been, we made it fast. We've made the change go faster. And, you know, there's some human beings trying to assist in that migration. And, and, you know, I'm happy to say that in that world, there's not a lot of hubris. People aren't saying, oh, well, if we move the maples, then, you know, we're going to save the maples. They're going like, oh, I don't know, maybe, maybe we can help this way. Uh, you know, but maybe their plants are doing that too. Not maybe, for sure. For sure, there's intelligence in this system that is doing the best it can to respond to, you know, the, the mycelia probably have a better sense of how, you know, what's coming than we do. The wind may have a better sense of what's coming than we do. You know, I, I play with the wind these days, you know, here we talk about anthropomorphizing. I play with the wind these days of like, I think the wind has all the information about the weather and is communicating it to the birds as it's filtered through the trees and over the mountains and that the birds are then telling everybody else about it. You know, that's like one little story that we could tell that, you know, we don't know, we don't know anything, but we do know like that the beery thrush, their migration is, I don't know if you know this story, this is, a, you know, one of these mind blowing ones, which is that, they migrate based on car, the correlation of their migration has been tracked now for decades and it's correlated with hurricane season. But when they start the migration, it's like six months before hurricane season. So they speculate that they actually know on some level when the hurricanes are coming way before, months before we have any clue at all. So how are they doing that? We have no idea. Is it electromagnetic? Where's the information coming from to them? We have no idea. We can speculate. You know, we can speculate. We can make stories up. Maybe it's the wind carrying it. Maybe it's electromagnetic. Um, you know, but this is, there's just so much unknown. And some people are, you know, go back to fear. People, a lot of people just are afraid of uncertainty. So this is not for everybody. And I'm not trying to, I am personally not trying to proselytize. You heard me say a couple times, it's like I'm doing this for myself and then whoever wants to join me. Thank you for this, for this discussion, Kate. Really beautiful to be with you and, and really helpful in, in my process. It's wonderful to be with you as well. If folks want to follow um, some of your work, where should they look um, for resources? to keep up with your projects. Yeah, so um, I've made a couple notes here for the ending, this ending piece. So one is they could of course go to the website, which is academyofnaturalrhythms.org. And I imagine you'll have that in the show notes. And um, the particularly the tab that says projects and practices, because on there there'll be, I keep that current, like whatever I'm working on, I, when I start thinking about something new, I do a Google Doc and I throw the link to the Google Doc on that page. So that's a place to just sort of tap in. I have some uh, interesting project there if anybody is um, 
interested. There's a, a kind of an esoteric Jewish holiday called the Counting of the Omer. It's a 49-day practice that runs from Passover to Shavuot. It's seven weeks. And you count for 49 days. So I've put together a contemplative outdoor Omer where every day, based on the energies of the Kabbalistic spirit of the Kabbalistic tree of life, every day is an energy that's anchored in kind of Gaian, Gaian stuff. So that's a that's a fun one that I put that I've been playing with. Um, so that's also on that page. Um, so they can, definitely can go there. And then um, there's two documents that I um, uh, that I sent to you to put in the show notes for people. One is a um, a dandelion fritter recipe, which is really fun. So it's you know it's they're not up now. So this would be a, you know bookmark it to cut for March or April if you're in the northern hemisphere. And um, and there's you know a couple of the savory and a sweet uh, version of that, and then there's another document that I've renamed a bunch of times. I'm right now calling it Other Awareness, and it's a it's kind of a guide for how do you connect more deeply with a particular being, with another being, and questions that you might use to guide your inquiry around that. And it's not intended to be used at one sitting. Like you don't go and ask these seven questions of this being. It's after you've developed some kind of relationship already with this being and how you might go deeper. Like, you know, where do you get your nourishment? Who are your closest kin? You know, do you do things that I imagine as like sleep or poop or, you know, like to, 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 it's a dive into the umwelt. It's a guy, sort of a guided discovery for the umwelt. So those two will be in the show notes. And then the final thing is I want to um, put an invitation to anybody who is listening uh, for a little collaboration. So the writing of these stories, these bedtime stories, I can't do them all. I mean, the, the intensity and passion with which you need to dive into an umwelt, if I did them all myself, you know, I could spend the rest of my life and I'd have maybe, you know, four of them because of what it takes. So if anybody listening has a particular passion or love or just interest in doing this you know like is there somebody out there who just just you know loves the the uh, lavender or loves the blue jays or loves the beaver or loves the barn owl so i want to do a barn owl uh you know to you know i can either we can try to like do a little interview or maybe you help write or you know there's a lot of different ways we could collaborate to get the story to get a story together and then you could you could write it if you want. You could record it if you want but before we get the famous people. And um, so that's my invitation. My invitation is to uh, to play with this writing with me or to just, uh, you know, invitation to get outside and find a being, say hello, even though it's awkward. Say hello, introduce yourself and just sit for a bit with them and observe. That's beautiful. Thank you so much for that invitation. And I hope listeners who are interested take you up on that beautiful offer. So thank, thank you again. You, thank you again, Sarah. <laughs> it's been such a pleasure talking with you. Um, and I really enjoyed our conversation today. Me too. Wonderful. <laughs> so if you're interested in networking with plants, feel free to reach out to us. Um, you can find us on our website, networkingwithplants.org, or feel free to email us at networkingwithplants 
at gmail.com. Until next time, go out and start spending some time with your local plants. Take care. Music piece is kindly offered to us by artist Mylise. Mylise is a sonic artist, immersive ecology designer, and clean energy ambassador. Merging art and technology, she creates music experiences that express the voices of plants and the other inhabitants of the earth.